Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. One of the things we're going to see when we open up the scriptures today is one of the reasons we gather together is to instill courage in each other. And so hopefully you've been encouraged already today just seeing people on the way in and uh, talking to folks and singing these songs. Uh, But next week is Easter. Amen? And we're going to practice right now. They're going to come ready next week. He is risen. That is true. And uh, today's Palm Sunday. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about that and the triumphal entry of Jesus. But this once for all, we're actually not breaking from Hebrews. And so if you got your Bible, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 today. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to open up the scripture. Sound good? All right. I'm doing it whether you say so or not. All right. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, thank you so much for uh, the gathering of your believers. And I pray, God, I pray that uh, the people that are in this room and that are watching online would be followers of yours. And if there are any that are not, that today that would change. And I pray, God, for um, any instruction and encouragement or correction or anything that needs to happen that would happen through your word. And uh, you would speak by your Holy Spirit, whether I say the words or not, whatever you want said today in people's hearts. You know what's happening in every, in every relationship and everybody's finances and everybody's minds and, and everybody's relationship with you. And I pray that it would be better as a result of our time in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I don't think it's a big jump to assume that everybody here has experienced some level of discouragement or disappointment before. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to maybe small group or you went to a Super Bowl party or a Duke UNC game and you didn't eat anything that day. So you were looking forward to the snacks and you got there and somebody had salad cookies. Have you ever seen those? Get a little picture of the salad cookies. There you go. Yep, your one friend who is combating, you know, American obesity on their own is there. And so you, you go to their house, you're like, oh, I may, like, you know, there's, there's nothing to that. I'm burning calories eating this. This isn't even any fun. Or you purchase something online. I ordered the other day some jogger pants. They're supposed to be navy. They came in purple. We do not have a picture of that. You're welcome. Um, I saw this one guy online. He ordered an, what he thought was an Xbox One. He paid $750 actually a piece of paper with a picture of an Xbox One. Read the fine print. Talk about being disappointed in your purchases. But I think oftentimes it happens with food. And so have you ever been excited about a meal before? We've got a picture of an animal here uh, pumped about some pizza. See the face, smiley face? Then you open it up. Oh. Do your dogs eat salad? Because my dogs will beg for food like crazy. And if I give them vegetables, they're like, no. Oh, I didn't mean that. They're like, ow, they do that, that face there. Or you, or you go to the drive-thru, you have like those late night cravings and you think you're gonna get something good. See the picture of the cheesesteak? Then the actual cheesesteak. I think Taco Bell's the worst for this. You know, you order like a crunchy taco and you're like, I didn't want a salad taco. I wanted the beef taco. There's like nothing in it at that moment. And so some of us have experienced disappointment. The difficulty is the disappointment, we've all been there, it can lead to discouragement. I was reading this week online on Reddit, just what some Reddit users had posted for the things that have discouraged them in their life. And it's a little bit bigger than food. And so some of you have maybe experienced some of these things as well. Um, One person said, uh, just as an adult, trying to make friends. That can be hard, can't it? Another person said politics. They said, I always vote, but it never gets any better. You can all relate. Uh, Somebody put, my wife and I trying to get pregnant. It can be very discouraging when they look at the first negative test and then it keeps happening. Uh, Trusting other people, trying to lose weight, uh, trying to keep in contact in a one-sided friendship, uh, thinking your job will get better and nothing changes. One person just wrote, being an adult, I quote, it sucks. (laughs) Okay. If you amen that, I'm not sure what to do with that at that moment. Um, Somebody put mental illness and they wrote their struggle with mental illness. Somebody wrote dating. Uh, One guy put my wife. He said, she left me in October. I keep trying to get her to come home. We have two small sons. I am lost. And so many of us have moved from disappointment to discouragement. The CDC released some stats this week, uh, or maybe it was last week, and they said that 44% of teens, so more than four out of 10, but four out of 10 teens are severely sad or hopeless. 2.5 million teens have severe or major depression. With adults, the thoughts of suicide have increased for adults every year since 2011. We're in a mental health crisis. 
There are a lot of circumstances when you think about our world. There's a war taking place. Inflation is at record highs. Uh, You know it just by the gas prices and groceries and yeah, there's all the funny memes, but when you go to do your budget, it's not funny. And so there's stress and financial tension and then there's marital tensions. Our marriage is under attack. Uh, By the way, there's sexual perversion coming for your kids right through their schools. Like that's the world we live in. And so it can be not just disappointing, but discouraging. And what I've found in my life experiences in studying the scriptures and in walking with other people is that disappointment can lead to discouragement. We all go on that path. But discouragement can lead to dark places. Those dark places can lead to disconnection and ultimately we know from the scriptures that it leads to destruction. So what do we do? And then here we are in church, where church can be a place where you're tempted to always have to be happy and put on a smiley face. And and we're going to celebrate today Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus. And then many of us aren't going to think about what happens between this Sunday and the next Sunday, which is Resurrection Sunday, another point of victory. But there's a lot of darkness in between those two places. And so I want you to think about that with me for a moment. So Palm Sunday, we celebrate. Some of you maybe grew up in traditions, depending on your church denominational background, where they handed you a little palm branch and people came in and they, they were singing as Jesus came in on a donkey into Jerusalem, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And we don't even know what that means, right? Most of us. It means our Messiah come and save us. It's a cry that we need salvation because we have a problem. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And then what happens after that? is that Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas, sold out for a little bit of money. Everybody abandons him. He's mocked, beaten, and crucified. But I want you to imagine, what would it be like to be one of the disciples? Peter's probably the most popular, so let's just think about Peter. There's a reason why Peter is hiding in a room in the Gospel of John, and then Jesus' first words are peace, don't fear, because he's discouraged. Could you be any more discouraged than where Peter must be at in this moment? Like we tell these Bible stories and then we don't think about these people as real people. We think about like flannel flannel graph characters where he dropped his net and he left everything. It was awesome. Well, we know that Peter was married. How do you think his marriage was for him traveling for three years with Jesus? And then all of a sudden he goes, what was the point of all that? Jesus is dead? I had no paradigm for a dying Messiah. What do you, what do you mean he's dead? I was going to follow him and I was going to sit at his right or his left. There's going to be a place for me in the kingdom and now he's gone. Oh yeah, and I betrayed him. Oh yeah, and I was betrayed because Judas wasn't just stealing money from the treasury. That was our money. And I had left my family business for this. How do you think his relationship is with his mom and dad? If there was ever a discouraging moment in his life, it was this week. And I want to ask you, when have you been the most discouraged in your life? And what do you do? Because discouragement, it's a place we've all been, but it's a dangerous place to stay. And so Hebrews chapter 10 tells us what to do when we're discouraged. So I've titled today's message, Dealing with Discouragement. If you've got a Bible, Hebrews chapter 10, it's towards the back of your New Testament if you haven't been with us. If you have been with us, you know we've been walking verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. And uh, the book of Hebrews is an incredible book. It's all about Jesus. And we've been calling the series, Jesus is Greater. We're taking a little break. We're staying in Hebrews, but kind of a sub-series in it. We're calling it Once for All, talking about the once for all sacrifice of Jesus, his death on the cross and his resurrection. Amen? But we've been seeing that Jesus is greater than everything, really. It started off in chapter one, that God speaks to us through his son. His name is Jesus. He's greater than all of creation, greater than all power, greater than all glory, greater than angels, greater than Moses. He is the great high priest. He brings a greater covenant. Amen? Jesus is pretty incredible, but what we haven't talked a ton about is who Hebrews is being written to. Hebrews is being written to some very discouraged believers who at one time were incredibly committed to Christ. One commentator that I read this week talking about this passage said it like this, Kent Hughes. He said, their Christianity had not been a worldly advantage for them. Rather, it set them up for persecution, the loss of property and privilege, and now could possibly even cost them their lives. We've read in chapter 2 where the author of Hebrews says, don't drift. Do you know why? They were drifting. Chapter 3, he says, hey, don't be like the Israelites who doubted God and then missed out on, it didn't mean God's promises weren't true. They missed out on experiencing God's promises when the 12 spies came back and gave a a difficult report. Do you know why he told them that? Because they were like those people. Now in chapter 10, he's going to say, you guys that at one point were ready to go to jail for your faith, were ready to die for your faith, aren't even attending church. You're not even meeting together anymore. You're so discouraged. Disappointment, discouragement, darkness, disconnected, each other and God, eventually destruction. And so he's speaking to them saying, here's what you do. 
We're going to start reading verse 19. We'll come back to the first 18 verses uh, of chapter 10 in just a moment. But verse 19 starts with therefore. Therefore, and he's connecting back to those first 18 verses, which we will talk about. But therefore, brothers, he's talking to believers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And that's some of what's been talked about in the first 18 verses. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, first commandment, verse 22, let us, not you, corporate commandment, let us together draw near. Now, we're not going to talk about this one very much today because we did a whole message on this about three weeks ago. When I remember the message I did when I was talking about hotter and colder, my kids are like, hot, 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 as you get closer to the object, colder. We're talking about whether you're close to Jesus or not. That whole message is about drawing near to God. And he says here, in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And the second commandment, we will spend some time here, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. There's the reason. Verse 24, the last commandment. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How do we do that? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, talking about the day of Jesus' return, drawing near. Here's what we know about that day. It's closer today than it was yesterday. Amen? Amen. Here's what's happening with these folks. At one point, ready to die. We're going to see later in chapter 10, they've already, some of them, lost property because of following Christ. But now some of them aren't even meeting together with other believers. They're so discouraged. And so what do they do? First of all, recognizing where they're at. It was A.W. Tozer who once said, and we'll put the quote up on the screen, that when you look at the heroes of the faith, it says, if the truth were known, the saints of God in every age were only effective after they had been wounded. And oftentimes that wounding, those circumstances, whatever they might be, is what leads us to the place of disappointment and then discouragement. So what is discouragement? And to even have to define that might sound silly because you just know it when you're in it, right? But what I've found to be true in my faith journey is that when you put words on something, it can help. And so I'm going to read you a longer quote than I would normally read. This might be one that you take a picture of. If you're watching online, they're going to put it in the comments for you. Um, But this might be helpful to some to identify what it is you might be feeling when you're discouraged. From an article by a guy named John Bloom. He says, discouragement often feels circumstantially determined. Something we can't help feeling because powerful forces beyond our control are causing it. That's why our response to discouragement is often passive. We sit weighed down with a heavy spiritual listlessness, looking at the world through the gray, bleak lenses of fear. Yes, discouragement is a species of fear. Don't miss that. That's new information for some of you. It's a loss of courage. And I'll just pause there and say this. English speaking, uh, which is what most of us are, but in the Bible is written in Greek, so I say that. Uh, When you're talking about English, the root word of discouragement is courage. Dis means the opposite of. It's a loss of courage. It's a loss of motivation to move forward. And so here he's calling it fear. It's a loss of courage. We don't always recognize discouragement as fear because it can feel like hopelessness with a side of cynicism. Do you ever order that in the drive-thru? I'll take some hopelessness with a side of cynicism. We might even call it depression because we have an accumulation of fears that are intermingled and seem somewhat undefined. And of course, if we're discouraged, we feel depressed. We feel like giving up. And when we feel like giving up, we are vulnerable to a whole range of temptations. When we give in to those temptations, our sin just confirms our discouragement, and we easily slip into a cycle in which fear drives us into hiding. No wonder they're not meeting with each other. Hiding opens us to sins of selfishness or self, selfishness and self-indulgence, and caving in increases our sense of helplessness and self-pity. So we sit weighed down by fear and condemnation, feeling stuck. And that's exactly where these Hebrew believers were at. And that's why they're not meeting. It's not because they weren't checking off enough, they weren't busy enough for the kingdom. It's because they're so discouraged, they're now disconnected, and that's headed towards a place of destruction. And so he's telling them, what do we do? What do we do? And notice here in this passage, all of these commands are not for you individually to do. They're for us corporately to do. It's let us, let us, let us, all three of the commands. It says here, if there was a warning on this passage, it would say this, don't try this alone. And that's why I've said all the points in the plural, plural, we must hold on to the hope that we've always held on to. 
When you start down that path of disappointment, discouragement that leads to darkness and eventually disconnection, we must, not I, we must hold on to the hope which we've always held on to, that you already had before the moment of discouragement, before the disappointment happened. Where does that come from? Well, it's coming from verse 23 in this passage, that second command. I told you we weren't going to talk about the first one much. Go back a couple weeks ago if you want more on the first commandment. Uh, Here it is, the second commandment. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, here's the reality. We've seen this lived out all through the Bible if you've read the Bible. But because of our American Christianity, sometimes we gloss over it. There's a temptation with American Christianity. I don't know if it's from the prosperity gospel. I know a lot of people at this church would be like, I despise the prosperity gospel. But it's in our hearts because we're American citizens. Where there's this general belief that we don't say out loud, but we kind of operate like this. If I obey, everything should be okay. If I just do what God tells me to do, then my life should go pretty smooth. However, if you read the Bible, it actually tells you the opposite of that. In this world, you will have trouble. Oh, thanks. But I've overcome the world. Hey, there's going to be problems, but I am with you. So it doesn't say he's going to fix all the problems. And one of the things I love about the Bible, one of them, it's so, if you wonder if it's true, like if somebody just, if we just made this stuff up, we would not have written the Bible the way that it's written. So some skeptics are like, oh, people just wrote down what they wanted to be true about God. Would you have written down, if you were going to write the Psalms, would you make 30% of them lament? Because that's how the Bible is. There's a book in the Bible called Lamentations. That's despair and mourning, by the way. Like who says, you know what? I need an encouraging word this morning. There's a whole book on despair. Here we go. There's a weeping prophet. His name is Jeremiah. Many of our heroes of the faith despaired of their own life. So you've got Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I despaired of life itself. Jesus himself weeps. He's disappointed in and discouraged by the response of Jerusalem. He weeps over Jerusalem. And we don't even need to get into the Garden of Gethsemane when God himself, Jesus, is wrestling with God's will. Really? The emotions of the Bible that we oftentimes ignore. Elijah, we'll talk about Elijah defeating 400 prophets of Baal. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, do you read chapter 19? Because in chapter 19, he wants to die because there's a single woman who wants to kill him. Really? You know what God says? Eat something, take a nap, and you're not, so, you're not alone because he's real self-righteous. <laughs> and so you, you start seeing this stuff. It's all over the Bible. And here we're being told, how, how do we deal with it? What do we, what do we do in this time? And verse 23 is telling us these people are at a spot where they've been disappointed. Now they're discouraged. They're probably asking questions like this. God, how come you're not fixing this? I'm praying and you're not answering. Where are you? Why? Most of our why questions come when we're in that dark place. These things come to the surface. James tells us what's happening. James tells us in James chapter 1 and verse 2 that we should rejoice in our trials. Nobody really wants to do that. And he's not saying like, pretend like everything's okay. What he's saying is because you know that what God's doing is he's testing your faith. That word for testing there doesn't mean he's testing your faith like to see if you have faith. It's the word for refining. Like when gold is made more pure, what they'll do is they'll heat it up so the impurities come to the surface. They remove the impurities, then they let it solidify again, then they heat it up again until you get all of the impurities out of it. That's the testing of your faith. What do we do when that heat's turned up? When there is war and recession and inflation and mental illness crisis and perversion coming at you and like all this stuff's taking place, what do we do? Here it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. What does it mean to hold fast? It means to grab a hold of something and not let go. I was trying to think about how to illustrate that to you this week. And so I started watching different videos on YouTube, which that can waste a lot of time, just so you know. But have you ever seen those videos where somebody's like walking on a glass bridge? I don't like heights. And so I'm like, I'm just, nope, nope, like out loud while that's being watched there. And uh, there's actually a sport now that I used to do some of this kind of stuff when I was a kid that I didn't realize they turned it into competition. When I was a kid, I remember climbing up on the trees and jumping off and climbing up on the house and jumping off and doing all that stuff. And people just thought I was stupid. Uh, but now... They've got this sport called parkour. Have you seen that? Where you creatively try to get from point A to point B and people are doing like flips and somersaults and all this kind of stuff. I was watching this guy on a 25-story building jumping over the edge of the building from spot to spot. He misstepped. So we won't play that video for you today because it's pretty intense. On his way down, he grabbed some electrical wires, which he did survive and afterwards was interviewed and said they were shocking his hand, but he wasn't going to let go. Do you know why? because it was life or death. That's the type of image that's being said here with the holding on. 
You hold on, you get a grip, you don't let go. Why? Everybody goes down the path of discouragement. We've all been there. It's dangerous to stay there. It's dangerous to stay there because the ultimate destination is destruction. The Bible gives a different illustration. They didn't have parkour back then. I'm sure they had kids jumping off of stuff, but they didn't have parkour. And so instead, if you've noticed as we've gone through the book of Hebrews, hope is becoming a theme. And so here it says in our passage today in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. You hold on, you don't let go. But earlier in chapter six, hope was called the anchor of our soul. And that was the image that was used. And in Hebrews chapter six and verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What is it? A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. A hope is an anchor. Okay, so I want to give you a more visual illustration of that. And so I've got an anchor over here for us. And the baptismal pool is open. Hey, what's up, Reed? How are you? Hey, interactive sermon. Did you get what? All right, count that baptism. There's one. There you go. But if you, uh, well, it wasn't immersion. We're Baptists. Sorry about that. Please delete from video uh, the sprinkling that took place over there. Um, but if I were to throw this, in, sit, just imagine that's the ocean, and then I grab this rope and pull it until it catches, now I've got something to hold on to. The way that I would illustrate this to you is by saying, you think about the world that we're living in, and it is crazy. You know, mental health crisis, like I said, financial stresses, marriage is under attack, your kids are under attack, all kinds of stuff taking place. But the problem with my illustration, no matter how I do it, if I want to make it visual for you, is that the anchor is here. The anchor in the scriptures is not here, it's in heaven with what is sure, it's a steadfast, it said in chapter six, a sure and steadfast anchor, which is behind the curtain. Jesus Christ has provided the opportunity for us to make our way to heaven. But then in chapter uh, 10, verse 23, it's saying, hold fast to the confession of our hope. What is that? It's the things that you knew to be true before you were discouraged. I'm not the first person to say it, but it needs to be a mantra for all of us. As a follower of Christ, do not doubt in the darkness what you knew to be true in the light. What are you anchored to? Well, when the life's going crazy, whatever's happening, your anchor's not here. Yeah, blown into a hurricane, all kinds of stuff's taking place. Your anchor is in what Christ has already done for you at the cross of Christ. See, verse 23 comes after verse 19. I told you verse 19 starts with therefore. The therefore connects to verses 1 through 18. What 1 through 18 is, is a review of everything that's been talked about in the book of Hebrews. It's weaving the themes together, and do you know what it's making clear? It's making clear that what we've been talking about this whole time is the gospel. And, and many of you come, oh, I know, the God. I know the good news about Jesus, which is what the gospel is. Okay. But many of us have learned some things that we didn't know. The gospel is nuanced. Many of us learned some applications we didn't realize were true. Some of us have been reminded of things. And so what verses 1 through 18 of Hebrews chapter 10 go through is they go, there's a problem. The problem is a sin problem, and you can't solve it. And there's a solution. It was the sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. He solved it. And then it goes through and starts talking about there's application to that. Problem, solution, application. Let me read it to you. In Hebrews chapter 10, for since the law has but a shadow of good things to come. And so the law served a purpose, but the law would never save you. No one ever obeyed the law. We've all violated it, at least in some way, but it pointed to the good news. It pointed to something else. That's what a shadow does. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that we are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. It can't change your heart. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Like you'd make a sacrifice and it'd be done, a once for all, but that's not what happened. They kept making the sacrifices year after year. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sins. It didn't deal with your shame. It didn't deal with your guilt. That's what's being said. Verse three, but in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. Oh, thanks, I need to be reminded I'm a sinner. And then get this, this is in the Bible. For anybody who thinks that anyone was ever saved by sacrificing an animal, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. No one was ever saved by the sacrifice of an animal. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will. 
O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will, this is Jesus. He does away with the first order to establish the second, the first pointed to the second. And by that will, we have been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Here's the statement of our series, once for all. And every priest stands daily, that's because their work's not done, at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Verse 12, and this is the key, here's the solution, but, but, that's a contrast. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Do you know why? Because it was finished. Your sin was dealt with, and oh, by the way, that doesn't change based on what's happening here. However crazy the circumstances are in this world, that stays the same. That's the anchor of your soul. No matter what, Jesus can't be taken from you. Your sins are forgiven. You don't deserve it, but you've been made right with God. Amen? Let us, not alone, hang on. Hang on to that. But there's implications. There's implications for that as well. It's more than just that this one thing happened. There's things happening now. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. God is patient, not willing that any would perish. But he's waiting for people to repent and turn to him. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being made holy, those who are being made more like his son, the church word sanctified. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to us after saying this. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. It's a reference to an Old Testament promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. I will put my laws on their hearts. You're getting a new heart. And I'll write on them, them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. It's a once-for-all sacrifice because it's solidified, it's accomplished, it is complete. It is done. That's our anchor. Amen? But what happens, what happens is we're anchored here. We start to lose grip. We start thinking about what's happening here or what's not happening here. And like the Hebrews that are going, hey, God, we're praying. You're not fixed. That's true. But right now, I'm not thinking about what you are doing. I'm thinking about what you're not doing. And I'm discouraged. I'm getting into more darkness. And I'm slipping away. And it happens to all of us. Just FYI. In fact, I was thinking about it this week. And if you go through the Bible and you think, who's the most committed person in the Bible? One of the people that has to show up on your radar is a guy named John the Baptist. They don't get much more committed than John the Baptist. He's one of only three people in all of the Bible that take a lifetime Nazarite vow. If you don't know what a Nazarite vow is, you're like, we're Baptists. No, it's not about that kind of Nazarene, okay? It's, it's a vow where you say, I'm not going to cut my hair for my whole life. I'm never going to drink alcohol. I'm never going to touch a dead body. The third one, I'm like, was that really that hard of a commitment? But whatever. <laughs> so he's committed. If you read about him, he um, wears camel hair outfits and a leather belt and eats locust. And I think, I don't think the guy was married. So he probably wore socks with sandals. Like he was a unique dude, okay? Like if you start reading about him. And he preached the same message that Jesus did. It was a message of repentance. But he preached in a different way. He was pretty confrontational. Like there's, a, there's one time where there's people that are coming to be baptized and he goes up to some religious leaders and goes, you brood of vipers. Like, <laughs> I don't think we'd put him on our hospitality team, okay? You know, next week people show up for Easter for service. They've never been to church. You brood of vipers, where have you been all your life? No, probably not. Let's not go that route. He baptizes Jesus. Like think about that honor. When Jesus is baptized, uh, the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove and an audible voice from the Father in heaven speaks. Listen, we're going to baptize people next week. You want to be baptized? We'd love to have you be baptized. If God audibly speaks when you are baptized, we're all going to pause and acknowledge that's a special moment, okay? I don't know what's happening, but something's going on. I've baptized a lot of people, never seen that. He saw that. He preached, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one who said, he must increase, I must decrease. The Bible says about John the Baptist, there is no one born of a woman, that covers most everyone, greater than John the Baptist. But there's a story about John the Baptist that most of us don't even know, or at least read over real quick. And what happens is, because he's not a people pleaser, in case you didn't pick that up from the description already, he gets thrown in jail. He goes to a guy named Herod, who's uh, the boss, the dictator of the day. Can you, can you even imagine 
a pastor today having enough guts to tell a, a political leader to repent? Like, our, our, we are such cowards today. I don't know whether it's a dictator, you know, China dictator, or even like a governor around. Like, it's just like, oh, I'm so, I'm praying for you. Like, they could be the worst guy ever. Like, I'm praying for you. It's like, so he preaches to Herod one time, and he tells him to repent. Do you know what he tells him to repent of? His marriage. Can you imagine Herod's conversation with his wife when he got home? What did the pastor say? Told me I needed to repent. Of what? You. <laughs> so he throws him in jail. And he's sitting there in jail, and he's discouraged. And he knows that Jesus preached, I came to set the captives free. In fact, when Jesus preached his first message in, in Luke chapter uh, 4, verse 18, he quotes from Isaiah. Isaiah unrolls the scroll of Isaiah. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, it's promised about the Messiah. He says, God has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to, to open the eyes of the blind, to set the captives, that's prisoners, free, to declare the year of, of jubilee, the year where all the debts are forgiven. Okay. So John the Baptist knows that. Now he's in jail. He's a prisoner. You going to set me free? It's not happening. John the Baptist is focused on what God's not doing, and he's missing what God is doing. And look at, look at what is said in this passage. Luke chapter 7, so you know I'm not making this up. John's disciples told him about all these things, and that probably is an allusion to the miracles Jesus has just been doing. He's just raised a widow's son. He's just uh, healed a centurion's servant. And, and it says, calling two of them. So while John's in prison, he's allowed to have visitors. He sent them to the Lord, that's Jesus, to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? What? Yo, whoa, hold up. John the Baptist is the guy who said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now he's calling two of his disciples to go say to Jesus, uh, did I have the wrong guy? Because you're not doing what I'm expecting you to do. Because I thought you were coming to rule and reign, and then here I am in a jail, and it doesn't look like you're ruling and reigning. What happens next? John the Baptist is doubting, in case you didn't know that. It says, when the, the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So, because he was, his life was backing it up, so he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard, what you, already, what you knew in the light, Go back and talk to him about that while he's in the darkness. What you've seen and heard, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Hold up. He just quoted Luke chapter 4 verse 18, but he left a part out. Did you notice that part? He didn't say anything about prisoners being set free. Do you know why? We don't know this in the moment if we're living it, but we can know this in the moment because we can look back at John's story because he's going to get his head cut off in prison. That's why. Jesus is being gracious to him in this moment, not giving him false hope. Encouragement is not lying to people about how things are going to go when you don't know. Jesus knew. But he is telling him, here's what you knew to be true. You know all that stuff you preached, John the Baptist? Hang on to that. The stuff you knew to be true in the light? Now that you're in the darkness, go back to the stuff you knew to be true in the light. That's what you need right now, John the Baptist. But then Jesus says something really wild. Look at this. You want crazy stuff. Don't go to church. Read your Bible. Look at this. <laughs> Blessed is any. This is Jesus. Red letters in some of your Bible. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus? You're what's going to cause us to stumble? Well, in this context, you can see what's happening here is who doesn't stumble because they get so mad about what God's not doing, they miss what God is doing. And that's what oftentimes happens to us in our dark places. So what do we need to do? Hold on, together, corporately, not on your own, hold on to the stuff you already know to be true. You're asking, why aren't you doing this? And how come this? And he might not ever promise any of that stuff. But he's doing all the stuff he promised. And so you miss what he is doing when you're focused on what he's not doing. Hold on together to this hope and hope in the Bible is not American hope. I've told you guys this lots of times, so just for review. American hope is I, I wish something would happen. I wish my team would win. I wish I'd get better from this illness. I wish that world hunger wasn't a thing. Hope in the Bible is a confident expectation of something you know to be true. You just haven't experienced it yet. It's in the future. Where's that anchor? It's in heaven. Where are we? Down here. Hang on. Don't let go. This is life or death stuff. 
And what else? There's another command. Look at the next command. Let us, let us, not just alone. Let us, remember, don't try this on your own. Verse 24. Verse 23, we hold on. Verse 24 says, let us consider, just think about this, reflect on this, how to stir up one another to love and good works. The way that I phrase this point is this, we must provoke light in the darkness. So you're discouraged, okay, let us together, it's not all on you, but you might need to be the encourager. One of the ways you'll be encouraged is by encouraging others. Let us stir up, provoke, same word. Uh, here in the English Standard Version that I just read to you, it says stir up. Some of you have the NIV, it says spur on, spur one another to love and good deeds. Um, the King James, yes, the King's language, all of you Shakespearean experts will be like, oh, this is about to get good, yes, <laughs> provoke. But you think about that word, provoke, stir up, catalyze. A lot of times that's a negative. Like it's, a, you, know, it's if I, you know, if I say something negative about your spouse, next thing I know you're up here going Will Smith on me, smacking me in the face, right? Like I'm provoking, I'm stirring stuff up. I'm provoking you in some way. Or you provoke people like if you're an NC State fan and there's a Duke-UNC game and you, just, you don't care who wins, you're just poking at both of them. Oh no, you're really poking more at the UNC people. We know how this works. Or you talk about masks, or you talk about no masks, or you talk about vaccines, or you talk about no vaccines, or you, you, you talk about whatever political topic is happening, gas prices, or you just basically anything you see on social media, that's provoking. And if you agree with it, it's not, but if, <laughs> it's provoking somebody. But did you notice in this passage, the provoking is not to like stir crap up, not to cause controversy, not to start a fight, it's you're living in this world where there's, there's rape and there's darkness and there's divorce and there's death and there's disease. And it's saying, stir up one another. And it's not just like philanthropic love and good deeds. Because remember there was a therefore in verse 19 and it ties it back to the gospel, which is in verses one through 18. This is gospel saturated love and good deeds. Therefore, stir up love and good deeds. I like how the message says it. The message um, says this. Let's see how inventive we can be in encouraging love and helping out. <laughs> and you think about that. When has someone else, another follower of Christ, caused you to live out your faith because of something they did? Maybe something they said, maybe it was some question they asked you, maybe it was some example you saw in their life, the example, the way that, be inventive in how this can happen, but think in your mind, when, is, when have you seen or heard or something happened in somebody else's life and it spurred you to live this out? I was thinking about that for myself this week and see one, one of our elders, J.D. Henserling, sitting here. At one time I was in a group, small group that he was leading and J.D. is known for asking some real direct, tough questions. He didn't always ask them to everybody in the group, but just knowing that he was going to ask them kind of kept me a little bit more accountable. And so um, he would oftentimes ask the husbands, not have you prayed for your wives, not just have you prayed for your wives, he would say, have you prayed with your wife? And so then I'd be like, I don't know if he's going to call on me this week, but I don't want, I'm the pastor. Like, I don't want to be in there and be like, ah, oh, sorry, I missed this week, J.D. Like, I'm terrible. So I'm, I'm going like, it doesn't matter if Shannon and I are in an argument or whatever, like, I'm going to pray with my wife this week. Because he might ask, spurring me on, provoking me, stirring up something in me. Have you ever experienced that? You know, I think and there are certain messages that you preach as a pastor too, and it's like, I got to step on the toes. I got to confront people here. That's not this one, just so you know. Because our church is really pretty good at this. I mean, it's kind of in our DNA that we want to do good things in our community for the sake of the gospel, not just to be like good people and make the community better, but because we want to connect people to Jesus for life change, amen? A lot of times I'll teach um, in the uh, new members class and I'll talk about, you know, our, our name Southbridge Fellowship and people will be like, why are we named that? And a lot of times they think because I'm a Yankee and we're in the South, that somehow I'm trying to bring some reconciliation, like get the grits up North and whatever else, start talking with the weird accent in the South or whatever's going on there. And that's not, had nothing to do with that, just so you know. The idea is the metaphor of the bridge. Because we think the gospel is better presented rather than just yelling at people about how wrong they are is by demonstrating to them who Jesus is. And the New Testament says that we're a royal priesthood. A priest is a bridge builder, by the way. And so they stand in the gap for people, represent people to God and represent God to people. And so we're trying to take the gospel to people. And we do that all the time in our community of different things that we've done, but just in recent history. Think about the pandemic happened. So remember schools got shut down? Do you know what a high percentage of kids depend on those lunches that happen every day? So we started feeding those kids and giving backpacks out and different things of food and doing that kind of deal. We became a COVID test site, had, you know, whatever thousands of people that were on campus doing that. And this, uh, Danny uh, today was talking about these love and action bags, uh, our sin pastor. And it's just an, an idea 
be inventive, an idea of a way that we were demonstrating love was filling these bags up with stuff that would bless people during this time of year. And so we took them to strategic partners. And you just think about our strategic partners and how they get the gospel to people. Like Gateway Pregnancy Center, Wendy is one of the leaders. She's in our first service. She'll stand up on stage sometimes, talk about uh, Life Care Pregnancy Center and uh, what they do there at Gateway and how they'll walk alongside moms who are making life and death decisions. See, a lot of times when you watch that on the news, it's a politicized issue, a pro-life and pro-choice. And this is not about politics. Like if you're a Christian, you're talking for an image bearer that has no voice. Like you don't have another option other than to be on behalf of those babies and, and be an obedient follower of Christ. And so this is not a political issue for us, but in the political arena, you know what gets said a lot of times? No, those Christians aren't pro-life, they're just pro-birth. Well, the way you would know that's not true is if people would go beyond just the birth and try and care for people after they have the baby, and that's what Gateway does. Tries to help them in those decisions, and so then we gave them some of these bags, full of stuff, and I can't show you the pictures that I have permissions from the moms, but I've had pictures texted me this week of the moms receiving those bags, and so overwhelmed with joy in this difficult time in their life where they're trying to figure out how to take care of this baby that they weren't planning on having, but have chosen life, and now you, through your generosity, 160 families in our church, pack these bags up. Spurn up, bring in light into darkness. That's what you're doing. And then you think about some of the other partners. We did it with homeless people through the Raleigh Dream Center. Um, there's an apartment complex. Our church has paid their rent each Christmas the last couple of years. Uh, we've gone in there, tutored their kids. We've got people that volunteer in there on a, a regular basis, helping people move. They're there during difficult times, just demonstrating tangibly the love of Christ. And then other people see that, and they start doing that, and people come to Christ. It's connecting people to Jesus for life change. Amen? That's what this Bible, what the Bible passage in verse 24 is telling us to do, is that very thing. And so it happens, they talk about being creative. Hope Reigns was one of the, the ministries that, that Danny mentioned when he was up here. They use horses to help kids get to Jesus through a mentor. I would have never thought of that. But God's a creator, God, and he is creative, and he has created creative people that come up with creative ways to then do things like what this passage says in verse 24, which is just to provoke not just controversy, not just fights, but love and gospel-saturated good deeds for the sake of people coming to Christ. It's pretty incredible. And you guys are good at it, so be encouraged. The third point could really be a sub-point of that one because it's not a separate command, but I'm going to give you another point so those of you who are A-type don't miss this. Uh, we must embolden the community we invest in. This is our local church. This isn't the big C church. This is the little C church that's being talked about here. We must embolden the community that we invest in, that we are a part of. It says this, verse 24, you've already read, then verse 25. And let us consider how to stir up or provoke one another to love and good works. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together. Those are the people that you assemble with. As is the habit of some. So some have fallen in the habit of not even meeting together. But encouraging one another, and all the more as the day of Jesus' return draw, is drawing near. And so this passage has been abused uh, before by church leaders where they try to get you to attend whatever their thing is. Uh, that's not the point. Don't worry about, like, try and forget some of your church experiences of, hey, you missed last week, so now you're a bad Christian, like whatever all that stuff was. What's being said here is these people were, they were discouraged. And remember when we're discouraged, we go to dark places. It leads to disconnection from other people and from God. And then so what happens sometimes in the American church is, because we're discouraged, we don't want to go to church because then we feel this temptation and we have to pretend like everything's okay. And then somebody's going to ask you, how are things going? And you don't want to tell them the truth because you don't know if they can handle it. You don't really want to talk about it anymore. So you pretend like everything's okay. You're like, I just better not. And then after a time period, a couple weeks of that, eventually it's easier to not go than it is to go. And then like we've had several people that have come back to the church who are like, I just got lazy after the pandemic. And you get disconnected. And that ultimately is dangerous. And so the point's not to heap guilt on you. It's hey, what's being said here. What, the reason why he's saying that to these people, that at one point we're ready to go to jail for their faith, but now won't even meet with other Christians. He's saying to them, you're missing one of God's primary ways to instill courage into your life. It's the gathering together. Because when we sing corporately, it's different than in your car. When you hear God's word taught and there's hundreds of other people around you and some are amening and some are going, oh, no, and like all that stuff's happening, there's something happening that's different than when you listen to a podcast. And so don't miss that for your sake. It's detrimental to your faith. It's a way to be encouraged. Because remember what courage, and I said that embolden, embolden your community. Because remember what courage, encouragement is, giving courage. Discouragement, the opposite, dis, of having courage. 
So when you're discouraged, you lack motivation, don't want to move forward, eventually even disconnect from other people. It's a dangerous place. It comes from fear, and the fears pile up, and eventually it's overwhelming. You need each other. Let us spur one another on. How do we encourage each other so that we'll have boldness in our faith? There's lots of ways. Be inventive in how to do that, in fact, but you've got to do it together. Don't try this alone. I'll be honest with you and tell you, when I first became a Christian, I thought encouragement was kind of a weak spiritual gift, uh, kind of wimpy or sissy or whatever language you want to use, uh, because I thought of it as flattery. Encouragement is not flattery, by the way. Uh, when you're flattering people, a lot of times you're lying to them, and that's not helpful at all. In fact, that can be detrimental. Hey, everything's going to be okay. You don't know if everything's going to be okay. Don't promise stuff you don't know. But Jesus will be with you. You do know that. You can say truth. Jesus told his disciples they were going to get killed, some of them. That didn't feel very encouraging, but I'm with you. That's true. That's encouraging. And so the longer I've gone in my faith journey, the more I've realized how essential, essential, because this is life or death stuff. You can't let go of the rope because if you like, this is, this is deadly stuff. You've got to hang on. And some of us need the courage to hang on. So one of the things I did this week is I just went through and started looking at what does encouragement do according to the Bible? And I jotted down some verses. I'll share them with you. It makes it easier to love Jesus and to love the people he loved. It says in John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Encouragement actually gives us hope. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4 says this, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. The Psalms say it like this in Psalm 31, 24, be strong and take courage, have courage, be encouraged all you who wait for the Lord. I love this verse. It strengthens our hearts. Isaiah 41, 31. But he who waits for the Lord shall renew their strength and shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Of course, encouragement gives courage. Uh, 2 Timothy 1, 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, remember what discouragement is, but of power and of love and of self-control. I love in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 9. God doesn't just tell us how to encourage somebody. He doesn't just say that we should encourage somebody. He shows us how to do it. Because what's happened is that Joshua, his mentor, has died, Moses. And then he's told, you're going to go fight other armies that are bigger, stronger, and scarier than you. And then the, the, the first words would be so empty if it wasn't for the last part. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Okay, but I'm scared. Like, what good does it do to say, be strong, but I'm not? Be courageous, I'm discouraged. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. Here's the reason. For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. Amen? It might get worse. The attacks from the enemy may get worse. You may not be healed. But God is with you. Amen? And he has the victory. And if your hope is ultimately in heaven, it is going to be okay. Because the worst case scenario is you're going there. Really? That's the worst case scenario? Let's go. Amen. Because you think about, I think about the passage of Scripture often when I'm discouraged. In John chapter 6, where Jesus is given some tough teaching, and the passage actually says that many of his disciples departed from him. And he turns and he looks at the 12, and it says in the passage, knowing that one of them was a devil, talking about Judas. Jesus knew the whole time what was coming. Knowing he'd be betrayed, he looks at the 12 and he says, are you going to leave too? And then Peter Peter says back, you alone have the words of eternal life, which you then think to yourself, well, there's no other option but you, Jesus, which is true. And it's taught later in John chapter 14 and verse 6. He's the way, the truth, the life. There's no way to the Father but through him. That is true, but there are other options. And if you read the rest of the gospel of John, you see one of the other options, that instead of holding on to the rope, you can let go. And go back to your old way of life, because that's what, that's what Peter does. You read John chapter 21, and after he fails, and he denies Jesus three times, and, and Jesus dies, and he's in that, dis he's not just disappointed, he's not just discouraged, he's in a dark place. He goes fishing. Which, remember, he dropped his nets, he left everything to follow Jesus. But now he's back to his old way of life, fishing. But do you know what happens in that passage? It's everything we've talked about in Hebrews chapter 10. What happens in that passage is 
He doesn't catch anything that night. And the next morning, there's a guy on the beach. It's Jesus. And he yells to Peter, says, throw your net on the other side. And Peter goes, oh, we didn't think of that the whole night. Probably said that. The Bible just didn't record it. But he's, he throws his net on the other side. They have this miraculous catch. And then if you know the Bible, you know that when Peter first came to faith in Jesus, he had been out fishing in Luke chapter 5. And it says in Luke chapter 5, they caught nothing all night. And then Jesus tells Peter, drop your net. Well, I mean, I'm kind of the pro at this, and you're just a teacher, but whatever. And he drops his net in, and there's this miraculous catch. And then Peter falls down on his knees in the boat and says, away from me, I'm a sinful man, Lord. And that's the point when he drops his net and goes and follows Jesus. So what's Jesus doing in Peter's life? Don't forget in the darkness what you knew in the light. Where's your hope? And so if you read John chapter 21, it gets even better. He he rushes up to the shore and his buddies pull the fish in, which is real nice of Peter. And so they get there and amazing detail, Jesus is already there with a bunch of fish And, and he's got a charcoal fire and he's cooking breakfast. And I think we read past that because in your life experience, I don't know if this is just true for me, but do you ever like smell something and it brings back a memory? ever had that? Have some of you shaking your head? I still to this day, I'm 45 years old. Still to this day, when I wake up in the fall and somebody's freshly cut the grass and you can smell a little bit of the gas from the lawnmower and the grass is cut, I still remember two a days from when I was like 17 years old in high school. And so at 45, I'm like, I feel like a 17 year old. And then I move and I'm like, I got injured sleeping, but whatever. (laughs) But that smell still brings something back. So Jesus is there. He's got a charcoal fire, John chapter 21 says. Do you know the last time Peter was at a charcoal fire? Was when he denied Jesus. It was when a little girl came and said, hey, through a fire, I've seen you with them. You know him. I don't know that guy. And now he's at a charcoal fire and Jesus says three times, do you love me? He's restoring Peter's courage. Some of you need your courage restored today. Father, will you do that in our hearts? There are believers here that are not closer to you than they've ever been. So will you change that? There are people here that are more discouraged than they've ever been. Will you remind them that you are with them in that? I don't know what you're going to do in their circumstances. I pray for healing. I pray for blessing. I pray for your favor. I pray for challenge and change. And God, I pray you do beyond what we'd ever ask or imagine in those moments. But I don't know your will. I don't even know what's happening for most of the people. And so, Father, I don't know. Maybe somebody is, is supposed to die. Maybe some difficulty is supposed to happen. It's all part of your plan. But we trust that you work all things together for the good of those who love you. And many of us here, we love you. If there's somebody here who doesn't know you, doesn't love you, I pray today would be the moment of turning to you in faith. And maybe that's why the difficulties come, to get them to the point where they need you. They know that they need you. Like we sang earlier, we need in the highs and in the lows, we need you. Father, will you save somebody? Will you heal somebody? Will you direct somebody in a way they hadn't been directed before this moment? Will you speak life where there's been darkness and death? Will you reconnect people to each other and to you? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.